Hi there, this is Lee Murray, the author of the Tane McKenna Adventures, the Path of Ra series, and also editor of Black Cranes, Tales of Unquiet Women. And you're listening to HP Lovecast Podcast. And welcome to episode 38 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Stiak, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, which is also from McFarland. For this episode of HP Lovecast, we'll be discussing William Michael's Dagon Rising. But before that, we've got some really exciting news to also share, that this is our one-year anniversary of resurrecting the HP Lovecast podcast. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about our last years of accomplishments and what we've done with the podcast. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about some upcoming news and new stuff that we're going to roll out. But let's uh, switch focus back to why did we bring the podcast back? Well, obviously, one of the big reasons for rebooting the podcast is the COVID-19. We were looking for uh, a project to work on, and uh, we realized that uh, we actually missed HP Lovecast and uh, the fact that we were spending so much time at home, obviously, uh, was kind of an impetus for basically bringing HP Lovecast back from the ashes. It's also a way for us to stay connected. You know, we have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues, you know, through the HWA, all the conferences we go to. You know, uh, it's nice to stay in touch with folks over Facebook and social media. But um, one of the things that we're able to do with the HP Lovecast, and we'll talk about in a bit, is able to reconnect with uh, some of those folks through this program. You know, it's also, a, you know, a creative outlet for you as well, you know, for doing editing and stuff. Yeah, it sure was. Um in uh, our first, I'm going to say, cluster of HP Lovecast podcasts that we did, um, we were basically doing that on the fly, and we didn't really have a production. Um, we just recorded everything live, so it was raw footage, so to speak. And we really wanted to up the game a bit on the production value. Um, I'm familiar with um, Final Cut Pro, and we use GarageBand. It's very similar to uh, Final Cut Pro for me. So that's what we've been using as a way to uh, record our podcasts and then do edits as, as needed and produce a final, final product. I'd say one of the other things that was a... Uh you know, critical for us bringing the podcast back was also the shift in topic. You know, we're kind of in a post-Brian Keene horror show. You know, uh, there's there's a gap out there, although we're not covering news or anything like Brian Keene was, but we're trying to dip our toes into things that other folks aren't talking about. What I mean by that is there is enough Lovecraft stuff out there already. There's so many books, so many other podcasts, so much other commentary. And in our original incarnation, I'd say like 75% of our stuff was Lovecraft-focused, while the remaining 25% was the more derivative stuff when we were talking about other people's work. Well, what if we shifted our focus and made our new show 100% about the derivative work? There's a lot of folks out there still writing in the Lovecraft fashion, doing innovative, interesting, and progressive things about it. And, you know, that's the stuff that needs to be spotlighted now. It's the new folks that have the torch that are creating the interesting, newer stories. And, you know, that's the stuff that needs a little bit of analysis, a little bit of spotlighting uh, that that we're that we've 100% kind of shifted our focus to. And I would say it also gives us the opportunity to promote these newer writers and promote the positive representation 
and also you know newer and different representations that we don't have in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's writing. No, 100% agreed on that. Uh, every, everyone needs a little bit of love out there with some promotional work, and we've kind of created a vehicle to do that. Um, and it, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, we're still, we've got great big plans to even continue that endeavor as more. The other kind of big thing we did is, uh, Mark 1 of HP Lovecast is we were recording everything to archive.org, which is the same folks that do the Wayback Machine, and we were uploading all of our podcasts there for free. I mean, our podcasts are still for free. Um, but the problem was accessibility. Even though it was out there for everyone, the fact of the matter is, is you know, most folks use an app to listen to a podcast, be it Apple Podcasts or something from Amazon or Pandora or iHeartRadio or whatever. So we decided to kind of up our production value, spend a little bit of money to actually get proper podcast hosting. And so we went to Buzzsprout. And what we found out is uh, uh, Buzzsprout actually was a little too much for us. And what I mean by that is uh, we actually had more hours per month than what we originally needed, which led to the rolling out of additional programming. Because, hey, if we're paying for, you know, X amount of hours per month, we're going to use it all, dang it. And so we wound up actually expanding HP Lovecast from not just our, you know, our flagship show of talking about a derivative work, but to a new show called H.P. Lovecast Presents Fragments, which is kind of, at the time, is a kind of our catch-all show. We were using it to interview other folks. You know, it could be a folk that we talked about their text in the primary podcast, now we're going to interview them about it. But we've also used it to, you know, kind of as our get-out-of-jail-free card to talk about whatever else we want. You know, we talked about Underwater last month. Um, and so it's kind of our you know, our playground to do something supplemental to our main podcast. And I think the response to the fragments has been pretty positive. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Um, just to back up for a moment, one of the other reasons why we left, left uh, archive.org is the fact that, you know, in our first iteration of HP uh, Lovecast, we were hearing people wanting to be able to stream, stream on the go. And even though we were in a pandemic, it was still an opportunity to explore Buzzsprout because people were not staying tethered to their computers necessarily. Um, they were, you know, using their, their iPhones and so forth. And I think that's where most of our listeners were coming from. Yeah, according to our metrics, a lot of you out there especially someone in Nevada. <laughs> There's that one person in Nevada that's really listening in on us. But really listen to Apple Podcasts. And, you know, we're here to be accommodating. You know, if we're here to grow as a podcast, we need to grow with the audience as well. So archive.org, it's a good platform. I love what they do to, uh, you know, keep track of internet history, public domain documents and everything. You know, maybe down the road we'll probably put some of these old episodes on there just because, you know, just to have more medium for places to have it. But right now, uh, yeah, we're we're using uh, Buzzsprout. We're getting uh, the podcast out to all the apps out there, and we, uh, and we, we a, see quite it. Quite a few apps, uh, yeah. including Pandora, finally. <laughs> yeah, it took a year for that one. So, yeah. Um, one of the other things that um, we did to raise our production uh, value and what we're bringing to you is uh, we had an intro and outro music. And uh, we had uh, Marcel, who did our kind of 30-second intro and outro for us. Which was and, really good. We loved it. Yes, we, we loved it, and we're very appreciative of what he did for us. But in the uh, new year of 2021, we wanted to uh, look at you know, changing up our music a little bit. And uh, we have a friend and colleague by the name of Philip Gerber, um, who is a uh, big fan of the show. He's also a composer and musician, and he composed the song that we're using this year called Azathoth. So starting in January, we had a brand new theme that was also uh, composed specifically for our podcast. The other thing that we've done is in... Uh, I believe it was February, we also rolled out our bumpers. And, you know, we talked about earlier what's a good way to keep promoting 
you know, the folks that we're talking about, you know, is there another thing we can slide in there? Because we can only do so much interviewing and so much, you know, talking about texts. So we kind of rolled out a bumper program where the first 10, 15 seconds of each of our episodes now has a different, right now, author, although we'll, you know, probably get editors and artists and poets down the road to basically introduce the program. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm the writer of X, Y, and Z, and you're listening to HP Lovecast Podcast. And so far, the responses that have been very positive, the people that have recorded bumpers from us have been very excited to, to hear them on the show. And it's just, you know, it's just only, you know, a couple few seconds of non-intrusive uh, programming in there to, you know, help raise awareness of other folks' work. I mean, alternative is you listen to other people's podcasts and it's 30 seconds of ads for NordVPN or something. I think we would rather, you know, instead of doing that, promote other folks' work. Yes, definitely. Um, and just <laughs> this uh, last month, March... We uh, have been working on expanding our social media, and we resurrected our HP Lovecast Instagram account. So if you're not following us on Instagram, we uh, resurrected that, and you can go uh, there as well as, you know, Facebook and Twitter. Well, that's just kind of uh, resurrecting the Instagram account is kind of the first step of a whole bunch of new stuff that we're looking to roll out in 2021 as well. Aside from the, let's just be honest, it was a neglected Instagram account. Not anymore. Our website is pretty neglected as well. We've been kind of relying on, you know, the Buzzsprout page to kind of be our main website for the time being. But we do have hplovecast.com out there, which is, you know, pointed to a free Google site. Well, one, Google Sites is going away. I think it's in October. They're shutting down that service, so we got to get off that anyway. Michelle and I, we've been working on our individual websites at WordPress, and so we'll eventually we're going to, well, not eventually, sooner rather than later, is get us up and running on an hplovecast.com site at WordPress where we'll, you know, uh, have our episode guides there, our news there, links to all of the different uh, apps that you can listen to us in, our social media, but we'll probably also use it as an avenue to dump some of our writing as well. Because, you know, in between podcasts, you know, Michelle and I, we're academic writers. We're always doing other things as well. And so maybe we'll also do a writing on a Lovecraft derivative work that's maybe not suitable for the podcast, but it's still need to get it out there. So the webpage may be another avenue that will disseminate additional supplemental material at. Yeah, and as uh, discussed earlier, um, one of our other big focuses in the new year, um, our new uh, HP Lovecast year, is to continue to expand um, our diverse representation, um, not just in voices of, um, I'm going to say color, um, but also cultures, um, and we're definitely expanding uh, global. We are looking to continue to expand representation of voices in other countries. Um, that's very important to us to have uh, diverse voices. I, we think it's very important. Um, and as we know from studying H.P. Lovecraft, um, the fact that representation uh, was not something that was... Um, focused on positively in that writing, so um, we are very committed and... Um, We're going to do our very best to make yes. sure this is not a podcast that this caters to the old white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, with the understanding, we know that we're white people, <laughs> um, but we um, also very much appreciate um, and feel that it is one of the best ways to learn about um, other cultures and other beliefs and interests and and um, just those thought processes. It's, it's, it's a way to appreciate other people as well. You know, you got to hand the mic to other folks as well and give them the platform that other folks are not giving them, and we're hoping to do that. And aside from that, we're also looking to expand into non-authors as well. You know, the horror genre, especially folks that deal with Lovecraft, you know, his influences felt in poetry, in art, video games, comics, um, all over the map. So hopefully in the next, uh, you know, year, our coming years, we'll also be talking to other people that create different media. 
Yeah, um, one of the other things that we're looking to do is, uh, as another way to promote others, is that we're going to be looking at book affiliate opportunities that allow our listeners to support our guests uh, through the projects that they have that are coming out or have already released, as well as our various book projects. We have several um, that we've worked on, and we have a number of them also you know, in planning stages that we hope to have. Uh, realized in the next year or two so definitely other opportunities to promote um, not just ourselves but all of our guests as well the other thing that we're looking to hopefully launch this month but it might be next month is we're actually going to roll out a new program as well called hp lovecast presents transmissions this is going to be a little different than our fragments program in that we want transmissions it's going to be uh, a program that showcases short-form interviews with other folks. Basically, quick 15-minute interviews that kind of ask the same questions. The idea is to be kind of, uh, you know, th- th- get in there, help promote their newest work, be it a short story, a novella, novel, whatever. Ask them kind of some key questions um, and kind of jam-pack a couple of those into one episode. So it'll be a nice little Katamari ball of interviews with other folks. And we... You know, as we seek to roll that out, we hope that, you know, y'all will appreciate that, that you'll hear a lot of different authors and their upcoming works and get excited to see what they have coming out. Yeah, so this this show will be probably two to three um, individuals, and like Nick said, uh, we'll have consistent questions kind of uh, for each, each person each month. Um, and then for uh, writers and authors and editors... Um, they'll probably also do a very brief reading uh, as a way to give a flavor of the text um, that they are promoting. So we're very excited about that, and we do hope to have that uh, in the, you know, uh, realized either this month or next month, probably at the latest. I think the last thing that we're looking to kind of roll out is a newsletter as well. I mean, we're, we're trying to hit all the social medias out there, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and get our uh, Facebook up, not Facebook, our website up and running, but to also look at having a monthly newsletter that basically kind of recaps what we did in the past month. In addition to that, we also rolled out a coffee account as well as another opportunity to support the HP Lovecast Endeavor. You know, coffee allows you just to contribute a buck or two uh, to, you know, it's an alternative to Patreon out there. We don't really feel comfortable doing a Patreon right now or anything. But, you know, if, you, if you're not really in the mood to buy a book, you can always, you know, support us by, you know, liking our content and proliferating it. But if you do want to give us a buck or two, we are putting our coffee link in our show notes as well. So we definitely appreciate any support through any avenue that our listeners do. And we definitely want to thank everyone out there for tuning in this past year. We hope that we've provided some great content during the pandemic. We hope we've exposed you all to new authors and their works. We hope that we've given you all some cool ideas, different ways to interpret these texts. And we look forward to you all uh, staying with us on this journey in this upcoming year as we continue to evolve HP Lovecast podcast. And with that in mind... Let's talk about today's episode, which is Dagon Rising by William Michael. But first, let's talk a little bit about Dagon. So, Dagon. A nameless protagonist is captured by a German submarine in the Pacific during World War I. He escapes on a lifeboat. After days at sea, something, maybe an undersea volcano, maybe, causes the floor of the ocean to breach the surface. When the land hardens, he sets, out to, he sets off to explore. One night, he comes to a large hill, and at the bottom is a big chasm with a huge white monolith and a big old monster worshipping it. The narrator goes a little crazy. He does a modified version of the Lovecraft faint and wakes up in a hospital in San Francisco. He is plagued by visions of his encounter, gets addicted to morphine, he pins his thoughts, and he commits suicide by jumping out the window just as something is shuffling outside his door with a big ol' hand. So, (laughs) that's Dagon. Um, Michelle, thoughts? I think the first thing about Dagon that I liked about it is that it was short, (laughs) (laughs) honestly. Um, As an early H.P. Lovecraft work, I think it was, what, 1919 that it was published. 
Um, it's an early early work of Lovecraft, so there isn't. Um, well, it's all description, which is fine. Um, but it's prior to him doing like a lot of flashbacks, multiple narratives, um, kind of lingering and laboring uh, descriptions. Um, it's also uh, so I I actually liked the fact that it it kind of gets right to the point. And that's something that I liked about this story. It, it's a simple story. It really is. It is a get in and get out. And not just because of its length, but really not a lot here happens. I mean, the, the, my recap, although I kind of wrote it to be kind of funny, it really, that's what it boils down to. A guy lands on a, not even an island, a resurfaced, uh, you know, mire from the ocean floor, sees a monster, and then commits suicide later. There's really not a lot of substance to that. But it's still an important text. It is extremely early in Lovecraft's writing uh, career. And I kind of consider it like as a prototype or a drywall, uh, dry run, not drywall, of stuff he's going to write later. You know, you could see a lot of Call of Cthulhu in this story. You know, uh, obviously, you know, Ryla rising out from the ocean mimics what's happening in this story. Uh, underwater deities, you know, playing with dreams. Uh, the ending is also replicated in a lot of other Lovecraft and Lovecraft successor stories. But I think what it kind of is missing, and that's a, uh, that you'll see in other Lovecraft writing, is that sense of dread and urgency. Um, the cosmic dread is not quite there yet. There's no real stakes in this story. Even Call of Cthulhu, there's some stakes going on here. You know, cultists around the world, what if the monster wakes up and, you know, brings out the apocalypse. This doesn't really happen. This is kind of a, a chance encounter in the woods. I saw a monster, I ran away from it, and he got me later. Yeah, I I think that's a, a good point, Nick, because I feel like there was kind of a disconnect in this story that that I think comes from the fact that there isn't um, a level of engagement, um, a concern. Yeah, maybe we're concerned for the narrator. Um, you know, we hope he is able to get out of there. Um, but quite honestly, it, it's it it doesn't have the the right suspense and tension that later Lovecraft stories got more into. It we is borderline boring at times. I mean, even the island he drops on is almost nondescript. He waits for it to harden. It's just covered in dead fish. And if, if you try to keep track of the days in this story, it doesn't really make sense, but it sounds like he's walking across nothingness for a couple days before getting to a hill. It's a, it's a, it can be, if you're not in the right mindset, a boring story. Yeah, um, I did get a little confused by the timeline uh, for this story, as far as like how many days or nights he was there. Um, and I do feel that as an early, you know, I think this gives us in insight into Lovecraft and early writing and, you know, the progression and how it evolved. So I think that not only does this introduce the Deep Ones, which will which we get to learn more about in Shadow Over Innsmouth, but we're also getting to see a little bit of that narrative uh, structure that Lovecraft is exploring in, in his early stories. There's definitely the aspect of the unreliable narrator here, but it comes more out of a cost rather than a benefit. Like, like example, if you're messed up on how many daisies on this island and how confusing it is, I think that's more of a testament to not the best writing versus I'm an unreliable narrator and I just can't recount it. Mm -hmm. So it's an important story. It's a foundational story. There's some cool germs of ideas here, but really it's, it's a fragment of a story is what it kind of boils down to that has aspirations to be something bigger. And I, I think... You know, Dagon Rising, which we'll be talking about in a little bit, maybe attempts to remedy some of those issues. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. It, yeah, Dagon Rising definitely adds a sense of the urgency. Maybe not necessarily the dread, but a sense of urgency that this story is missing. Um, I think there was a sense of dread, um, but we'll get into it uh, because it is. I. I I took from it a little bit different dread as a result of kind of that lack. 
two two other things about Dagon that's you know more important on, on my front is one I'm really in a tiki culture and I kind of have a theory that both Lovecraft stuff and tiki stuff is kind of built on the same literature background uh, I do have the the Lovecraft library book from uh, Hippocampus Press which I'm kind of looking to confirm but regardless this I kind of consider this also as a Polynesian pop story, and I think that kind of lends well that, you know, in decades to come, while you see a little bit of crossover between tiki culture and Lovecraft, you know, there's uh, the Horror and the Clay uh, company that makes, you know, Lovecraft mugs, there's a lot of Cthulhu mugs out there, and glassware and whatnot. You know, the same thing that happens to uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of incorporated in a tiki culture. So has Lovecraft stuff. And I think um, Dagon is kind of the first story to make it kind of overly po uh, Polynesian pop. And second, and I bring this up whenever I can, when I'm looking for Rene Girard elements in Lovecraft, I think there's the possibility of some of it being in the story. I mean, you have this monster, he's doing something religious at this monolith. Now, if he's doing something sacral, then that kind of ties into, hey, he's, maybe he's performing a sacrifice, we don't know. But the end result is, violence still occurs. This uh, He... Uh, the character of the story is pursued so much and haunted so much that he seeks to commit suicide at the end. So there might be some shades of something that a Rene Girard reading might reveal something kind of cool. One last thing, because we need to talk about the ending of Dagon, because it's going to shape uh, Dagon Rising. In Leslie Klinger's annotated H.P. Lovecraft, he has a footnote about the ending of Dagon. I'm going to read it. It says, quote, Most scholars agree that the reader is intended to conclude that the narrator is hallucinating. But according to S.T. Joshi in I Am Providence, some readers, and that's in air quotes, evidently believe that Dagon, or whatever the creature that the narrator saw, did indeed follow him to San Francisco. The hand witnessed by the narrator must have been webbed, or else were grotesquely large, to evoke such a reaction. So, your thoughts on that take of the ending? I, I took a literal take, and usually my default is I take everything at face value for these stories. It's much more interesting to, to think that all this wasn't a hallucination, that he... You know, he didn't hallucinate that he saw a monster that kind of plagued him. He turned, you know, that these are all just morphine-induced, you know, craziness. I take it at face value. Not necessarily that the monster pursued him to San Francisco, because um, you know, as we see in successor Lovecraft stories, there's cultists around the world that could be doing this bidding. But I still take it as, yeah, he saw something and something pursued him that scared him enough that he had to jump out the window. I don't think it was a hallucination, um, but I would have thought maybe so without Dagon Rising. Um, but with the Dagon Rising kind of interlaying that as a as a as another layer to the original story, I would tend to think that maybe Lovecraft intended that there was something that there was really something at the door. And I say that because in later stories that we read by him, as well as others, there tends to be somebody truly at the door. We see it a lot. It, the ending of Dagon happens verbatim at the end of Haunter in the Dark. Uh, the guy at the end, he's pinning his stuff, and there's someone creeping up the door. And even our recently read August Derelift's House on Kerwin Street ends the exact same way. The guy, you know, he's in his bedroom, there's something at the door. Now, the difference in that one is the guy lives. You know, he's going to go on to the next story because he recites the, the incantations and he flies on the eyeball thing. But, you know, they're all in the same. Uh, so there's no reason for us not to believe that Dagon does it in the same way. That, yeah... That, the guy is definitely hallucinating, but he's not hallucinating that there is a malevolent force outside the door that's going to do something to him. So, with that in mind, let's transition to Dagon Rising because the jumping off point from that's going to have a big influence on how we read Dagon Rising. Dagon Rising is a parallel or complementary story to Dagon. Dr. James Riley is a head doctor at a brand new hospital in San Francisco, and his first patient is George Wilkins, the now named protagonist of Dagon. 
George has been brought in on a cargo ship, who found him lost at sea. Wilkins is mad and put on a morphine treatment. Coinciding with his arrival, the newly built hospital starts experiencing episodes where sections go cold and clammy, causing to upset others. Wilkins eventually gets better and is soon discharged. Months pass and the ship that brought Wilkins to San Francisco returns, but a plague of sorts has hit the crew, basically showing the same symptoms as Wilkins. The Scottish doctor regales how they set sail and while passing the equator, roughly where they rescued Wilkins, the crew started to be overcome by a malady and thus they returned to San Francisco. However, the lure of their dreams is too much and the ship takes off again. Dr. Riley sees Wilkins as the key to this mystery and hires an investigator to track him down. Riley slowly starts to change as well, becoming more monstrous, amphibious. His detective has a lead in Boston, and Riley makes his way by train. However, his notes end the exact same way as Wilkins ended in Dagon, possibly jumping out the window while seeing, while hearing something at the door. So, thoughts, Nick? Not bad. It's a definitely an interesting side story that supplements, clarifies, and even alters the original text. So I dig that aspect about it. It opens up kind of more mysteries, I think. Definitely more possibilities. I, I, I kind of see perhaps uh, another story that continues the adventures of Wilkins and Riley. I also want to point out, this is, this is the, I think, the third time that uh, we've read uh, Michael. Um, previously, we read him for Children of Glacky, although we didn't discuss that one on the program yet. But we also did this read and discuss him in our Heroes of Red Hook episode, which was in our first incarnation of H.P. Lovecast. So we're going to put that in the show notes if folks want to revisit that. But it's nice to read uh, Michael's work just because he is so prolific with his Karnacki character. And it's just nice to see his take on a... I would say, supplemental story here. So with that in mind, uh, Dagon Rising is kind of interesting in that, depending on how you kind of read it, because the original Dagon doesn't give us the date stamps and kind of time progression as Dagon Rising does. Dagon Rising is also... Uh, epistolary has its diary entries with clear-cut dates, and so we have a natural progression of things, that when you put the two texts together different things can occur at different times. And what that led to was, is Michelle, you had a, a, a different interpretation of when things occurred, which drastically changed the ending of Dagon, while I had a different drastic of, uh, take of when things occurred, which changed my take of how in, uh, Dagon ended. So why don't you go ahead and start with your take? Okay. So uh, first off, I want to say that because of the epistolary uh, format of Dagon Rising, I immediately felt a sense that our narrator was um, definitely more reliable. And I think that has bearing on my reading of the ending. Um, my take is that the ending of Dagon and the ending of Dagon Rising, it is Dr. Riley at the door. And that George Wilkins hears... Um, Dr. Riley at the door and that causes him to possibly jump out the window. We don't know because they both end suddenly so we don't really know what happens after that moment but because my take of the reading is that Riley was a more reliable narrator we, he's, he's documenting his changes the fact that he's becoming more round eyed and he's got the webbing between his, his uh, toes and things like that that by the time we hear with George the the slippery, slimy weight that's coming at the door, I immediately thought, that's Dr. Riley. That's Dr. Riley who's come to George to get his help. But George, in uh, response, is thinking that it is some uh, one of the deep ones. And, of course, that makes, to me, it makes sense because... Dr. Riley has changed so much that, you know, and he's changing on the train. He's becoming more and more 
not himself, that I would think that by the time he got to Boston and got to the door, he had become, he had transitioned completely. And that's, that is my, my take of the, the ending. So for you, Michelle, I, I think, I think when you read Dagon, you kind of, it's implied it's taking place in San Francisco, that that's, you know, where it is. And when he's writing down his journal, recapping everything, he's still there, that this is probably taking place maybe a month or so after his encounter. But your reading is, this is probably taking place way down the line after Dagon uh, rising, because that will allow Riley to become the villain of the first Dagon story. Yeah, because we don't have a timeline in Dagon. No, we don't even we don't have a timeline. We also don't have a hundred percent sure the house that uh Wil well he's unnamed in it at this point. Mm -hmm. We don't even know where he is. We're assuming it's San Francisco, but it could be it could be anywhere. It yeah, and the reason why I took it that it was Boston is that I'm also taking the stance that Riley and thereby his conversation about what the detective is bringing back to him is also a true accounting of what's transpiring for the uh, investigator. That the investigator was able to follow George went back to Boston or went to Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's where I make those connection of dots that, and why it's not in San Francisco but in Boston mm -hmm. because Riley is conveying true events to the point that he's able, to the very end, that at all times he is actually a reliable um, narrator. So I have, I have a different take um, that the ending of Dagon happens during uh, Dagon Rising. So it's the journal entry that for September 2nd, 1916, it starts with, Finding George Wilkins is not proving to be easy. I do not even know if he's still in the city. The forwarding address in the hospital records lead me to a boarding house in the Heights, but he's long since moved on. And so I think that's kind of, that, that little area is what leads it a little ambiguous. For you, he's moved on to Boston, and that's where he's going to do his notes and stuff. For me, this is where it's a little different for me. I take it that's where Dagon takes place. He's in the boarding house writing down his Dagon diary, and a monster pops up and goes, Bleh! and this is where two, one of two things happens. Either one, even though the ending of Dagon heavily implies he's jumping out the window, and we see that in other Lovecraft stories and the August Derleth story, what if he actually didn't jump? What if the monster got through the door and got him? Either abducted him, or they talked, or something, but he's alive, and then that sets him on his trek to Boston. R2, and this is a slightly more cynical ending, that Wilkinson did jump, and he did die, but, you know, it didn't make the papers or whatever. And the detective is just fleecing Dr. Wiley along. Yeah, yeah, you stayed there. I don't know where he is in Boston for all I know. You're going to double my fee? How can I ride this guy out? I don't think that's what's really going on. But I kind of have to entertain it. But for me, is is the ending of Dagon and then the ending of Dagon Rising are two distinct endings that happen to mirror each other. But But ultimately... You know, uh, what's happening is, 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 um, uh, Wilkinson is getting to Boston somehow, obviously. Um, I, I, I think that the monster, you know, they chatted and had tea or he got abducted. I'm not sure. The, the kind of the, so kind of two different readings that are both valid for different reasons, just because with the original source text of Lovecraft, which is weird because in future Lovecraft texts, they're pretty good at, you know, he does provide dates and timestamps to newspaper articles and all that stuff. And I'm guessing because Dagon is such an early entry in his uh, repertoire, he doesn't really have that, that it's really flexible. It can go different ways that, you know, uh, your take is, is uh, Dr. Riley is the villain of Dagon, which is really cool, or they both encounter different monsters at different times, which is also cool because it kind of leads into the whole Innsmouth type thing or whatever. That's the only thing, reason I could think of they're going to Boston because bo next stop from Boston is Innsmouth route. Right? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I think that also Michael could be thinking about the using uh, Shadow over Innsmouth, the fact that Deep Ones, before they completely uh, transition uh, to Deep Ones, they, they are humans um, with uh, some sort of genetic coding that uh, as they age, they transition uh, to Deep Ones. So if he's using that idea, I could... That also, I could see why Dr. Riley, who sounds like he's a little bit older, we don't really have his background, uh, and if Michael is kind of using Shadowver Insmith for that kind of, you know, extra layer of storytelling and acknowledgement of, you know, that story the readers probably are bringing to reading this uh, text itself. And. I, it's not that I don't disagree with the Shadow of Smith angle. I actually think that's what's going on. But I think that kind of leads to what is the problem with this story. And that's, why is Riley getting crazy anyway? And, mm-hmm. the, and I, think this is, I think this is the missing piece that makes the story click the best. I like that it's multifaceted, that the way it plays with Dagon and its temporal locationist that can lead to different... Uh, interpretations and different threading offs to different narratives. But I, I'm kind of dumbstruck on how Dr. Riley gets infected in the first place because Lovecraft stories don't really have contagions in them. Um, you know, he deals with madness and, you know, other kind of big things like that. Um, and I'm, I'm scratching my head because, well, if we think back, you know, to, to Dagon, the Wilkins and that, you know, he's on the island, he sees the monster, he comes back on the boat. If he's supposed to be infected, why isn't he infecting, like, the hospital people? I mean, obviously he's having some influence because the hospital's cold and clammy. I think we're kind of set to believe that there's a monster there or something. But it's when the boat goes back across the Pacific and they go over where they rescued Wilkinson, you know, they get affected by some sort of malady, be it contagion, curse, I don't know, and they bring that back. But, you know, in, in, in effect, they should be affected the exact same way as Wilkinson is, you know. They're operating the same. So when Riley meets up with the doctor of the boat and gets his testimony, I mean, there is that paragraph where he says, you know, I took my mask down. Now, side note, this is a pre-COVID story for kids out there, so always leave your masks on. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that, that's the one point in the story where... The Dr. Riley is talking with the doctor of the boat. He gets his recount. He actually says, you know, he didn't listen to his safety precautions. He took his masks off and all that other stuff. And it's at that point, Dr. Riley starts his transformation. He starts having dreams. He starts, you know, getting webbed. I think they say spatula feet, which is kind of a cool visual. Yeah. But I don't get it. I mean, if it was a virus story... That would make sense, but Lovecraft doesn't do viruses, and if it was a, if this is a virus story, it's not with the logic of what all the events have happened before it. Because if it was a virus story, Wilkins would have infected everyone at the hospital. That didn't happen, which leads me to believe that the only other thing I could think of is, is, is Doctor Wiley actually an Innsmouth person? He doesn't even know it. That. Yeah, the crew of the ship got hit with a malady, but they're just crazy. Wilkinson got hit with a malady. He's crazy as well. That's just what happens when you, you see deep ones and weird stuff. But Wiley's the odd man out. Why is he going through a transformation? Wilkinson wasn't going through a transformation. Or maybe it implies that, you know, from like your take of the story, that maybe he might be. I don't, I don't think so. I can only think of that. Riley might be an Innsmouth person that we don't know about, and that's why he's going through a transformation. But again, after you juggle all this stuff, it just doesn't mesh. Well, and I'll add another conundrum in there, and that is the fact that uh, Nurse Martinez, Mm -hmm. you remember, she experiences these cold, these clammy spots in the, the hospital, and she actually goes to Dr. Riley and tells him that she's refusing to uh, work the the graveyard shift any any longer and he even says you know she's a great nurse i can't lose her so he puts her on the day shift and and that's kind of you know we don't hear anything more from her until much later when dr riley is now in dire need to find wilkins and he he's and it's right in the same area where 
he's talking about he's starting to notice bodily physical changes and um, he even comments that nurse Martinez is avoiding him staying away from him um, so she's obviously seen these physical manifestations of his malady uh, occurring uh, so but why is she also not changing why is she not why is she not infected or changing like George Wilkins we are going to assume that he didn't change and nurse Martinez didn't but why does Riley and why does the crew become crazy and we don't we don't even know if they they've changed other than the Scottish doctor well, we, we, we do know that the epilogue for that is they just disappear. Yes. I, I think the idea is is it's implied that they probably turned monstrous, they turned aquatic, they dived into the ocean. But again, you know, these aren't Innsmouthy people because, you know, as the logic in Shadowver Innsmouth established, the main character of that has always been an Innsmouth person, and it's an adult that you do the transformation over. This is a... this The only thing that makes sense is it's a, it's a contagion story that's not operating within the rules that maybe it's trying to set out to do. That's the only thing I can think of, because in theory, the aftermath should be everyone on the boat is going to turn into a monster. Wilkinson, depending if he committed suicide or not, if he didn't, he's turning into a monster. Riley, turning into a monster. The nurse, turning into the monster. But as we see, as soon as Wilkinson's discharged from the hospital, the hospital turns to normal. In fact, if the yes. boat never came back to San Francisco, Riley, this this would have just been, you know, a tiny footnote in his career. Nothing would have happened to him, and the, everything would have operated as normal. So it's that boat coming back. It's bringing something with it. And again, those are all kind of cool concepts, and I like the idea. But it, this, there's something here that's just not gelling right. And that's just what I can't put my finger on. If it's a virus, it's not operating consistently. If it's not a virus, then and then everyone's an Innsmouth person that we don't know about. Or option C, it's just, you know, as plot dictates, certain people are going to get affected and some people aren't. That's the only thing I could think of. Well, and the other thing I was just that just came to me, and that is, uh, as I was talking about early earlier on was the uh, reliability of our narrator. The thing is, is that maybe Dr. Riley is absolutely not reliable at all. And that the format of, you know, these epistolary he, entries... He's not reliable, but he's supposed to be the most reliable. Because He's supposed to be, but what if he really isn't? Mm-hmm. And all this is just his imagination. Mm-hmm. It's a dream. Um, Which goes into, apparently, uh, the Leslie Klinger footnote at the end of Dagon, where, you know, everyone kind of prescribes that the ending of Dagon was, it was just hallucinations. And if that's the case, then that plays into this as, then that's true. So, different ways to take it. And I'm not, normally I'm like down with that, but I don't know. I I still feel like something's just not gelling. I think I felt... um... That because of the gap of really kind of how this in, this infection occurred or because the cosmic horror should be you personally experience it or you've heard, you, you've had some sort of involvement in that, the progression of the narrative. And I just don't think that Riley had that, that involvement that we see with Lovecraft stories. And I think that's where, for me, there's a bit of a gap. There's a little bit of of that missing thread to really kind of put it together. He, he is involved, but at the weirdest, minimalist sense. He's involved with Wilkinson in the hospital, but purely as a doctor. Now, he's not like hearing his rantings and everything and taking away. Yeah. And then when he's talking to the other doctor, we read his account, but it's not like he's pursuing it like like call a cthulhu like oh my god this is a big you know hoop de doo i better you know go super explore this it's it's pretty bare minimal involvement on both fronts so i think you're 100 percent right there he's involved but not in the way that other lovecraft characters get involved and submerge themselves yeah because it even says in the opening of dagon rising you know uh Actually, Michael brings up that there was a plague of 1908. Um, San you know, Francisco has a lot of rat plagues, apparently, <laughs> in history. 
Well, you know, and just, you know, maybe that's a setup. You know, that's why they had to, the the old hospital uh, was burned to the ground. We have this new brick um, hospital that's, you know, doesn't have supposedly plague and infection and things like that. Um, I'm also just kind of looking back, and we don't really hear that uh, Dr. Riley is hearing all that much from George. You know, he's incoherent. He's under, um, you know, he's in a morphine stupor for much of it until he, he comes out of it. And he doesn't even know what happened to him for the two weeks. So it, it really is hard for Riley to have, like, any sort of inkling that would cause him to go go mad. I think so. And I think that's, ultimately, I think this is still a 90% great story that really plays with the source text. It's just, I think it's just this one little thing needs a little bit of clarification. Is it, if it's a contagion, it just needs to operate consistently. If it's not a contagion, then I think you need that better a focus connection between Riley and what's going on. Because after all this, Riley's operating like a normal Lovecraft character. Oh, I'm obsessed. I gotta track this guy down. There's now stakes. I'm in pursuit. I'm trying to do my research. At that point, he's operating the way he should be that we see other Lovecraft characters. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think we're just missing that one bit of Lego. The, the, the Lego house looks good, but you can't help but think that one brick is missing. And I think that's it. One other thing that I was thinking about in reading this story, and again with Dr. Riley, um, that created a sense of dread for me. Not just, you know, what was happening uh, kind of around him with uh, Wilkins, um, his malady, but also with the Scottish doctor, um, you know, all that was going on, was the actual uh, mental degeneration of the doctor himself. And it, it made me think about the idea of as we grow older and we start to lose our mental capacity to do simple, um, like arithmetic or, you know, some other things that now it's a little more challenging or we're a little more forgetful, we're becoming more senile or, you know, whatever. And it made, that's where I started to really... When I started reading the story from that angle, I really got a sense of dread and um, a sense of sympathy for Dr. Riley with what he was going through. You know, to have this brilliant person who is going through this transition um, and it, you know, starts to progress faster and faster after the Queen of the Ghost or Queen of the Coast. Uh, ship comes into port and then leaves and then it seems like his uh, degeneration occurs even faster and um, I really got a sense of dread during those those particular moments of the story that I thought that Michael did a very nice job and I know that we've read another we read another story and I'm I am like forgetting is it the swords against Cthulhu story with the the older lady who envisions herself in the dreamlands yes i i thought of that story when i was reading uh the the dr riley and kind of inferring that that mental that mental degeneration Mm -hmm. i i definitely agree with the generation part i don't know i i kind of took away that dr riley isn't like an older doctor but a very young uh newish doctor put into a newish hospital and he's optimistic it's just if i may like the, the way the story starts out, it's really optimistic. It's like, I'm, I got a new hospital. I'm going to help people out. We're going to do good stuff. And I'm like, man, it'd be nice to have that that healthcare optimism today, you know, <laughs> that that people actually care about things. Um, so I kind of took that approach. But, yeah, I, I, I do agree. As he starts to degenerate a, a bit, metamorphous or whatnot, you know, we don't know what's going to become of him. If, if he's an Innsmouth person, then maybe he'll wind up keeping his facilities, but he'll be a monstrous Innsmouth person. If he's not an Innsmouth person, then he's going to, I don't know, turn into a puddle of, you know, protoplasmic glue slithering around for all we know, which is not not a good fate. But that that's, that is that is an excellent, you know, part of uh, 
you know, Michael's right. In fact, uh, you know, we begin the podcast discussion, you'd brought up, you know, the book is billed Lovecraft versus Michael. And that's, you know, what, you know, you, you kind of think of it as combative. It's not really supposed to be combative, but it's definitely Michael taking Lovecraft's work and transmuting and making it into something greater. And I think that's one of the things that Michael's doing is it's definitely the character building. This story is set up exactly like Dagon. It ends the exact same way as Dagon, you know, right down to the window, uh, the epistolary format, even the tone and everything. But definitely, you know, the protagonist of Dagon, he's a blank slate. And that's fine, I suppose, but, you know, we now have a bona fide character in Dagon Ryzen, and through his journal entries and whatnot, we do get that, you know, he's optimistic, he's probably a, more or less a competent doctor, he cares, he's inquisitive, uh, he, he has goals, uh, so if we're doing that Lovecraft versus Michael thing, de definitely right there, something that Michael's doing better. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, I, I think he is, and I, I, I actually thought that was an interesting um, potential reading of the text. I think I'm going to take a gander here, and I could be wrong, because, again, I'm not 100% not familiar with uh, Michael's work, but I think that's one of his kind of fortes, is kind of capturing tone of other writers and genres and doing his own thing with them. I know he's really known for his Karnacki series, but he did do uh, a James Bond story called uh, Into the Green, which was published in a book called Bond Unknown from April Moon Books. And I wish we could time travel back to grab this book because we're, we're both Bond scholars. I mean, Michelle has a book called James Bond and Popular Culture. We're also both Lovecraft folks. So we, oh man, I would love to read Michael's take on James Bond and Cthulhu. That would, it needs to happen. So, but I wish that book was still in print. Um, I think one of the other things Michael does really well in this story, and that's something that Lovecraft winds up doing as he starts fleshing out his world, is that kind of globalized interconnectivity of everything. Um, I actually got really strong Krzysztof Kozowski vibes of this story, where characters mirror other characters and they're connected. And I, one of my all-time favorite movies is Three Colors Red, and, and that movie has this old judge. Well, there's also a new judge, and the old judge kind of realizes the stuff that the old, the newer judge is going through mimics what he's has gone through. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I think a similar thing, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, happens in Double Life of Veronique, where, you know, characters are duplicates of other characters, and the same things happen uh, to them. And... And I think of Dagon Rising, the exact same thing that's happening to Dr. Riley is what happened to the the character from Dagon who would become uh, Wilkins. So there's this kind of cross the double lives type thing going on, interconnected double lives in a very Krzysztof Kielsowski sort of way. And I think um, Michael does a good job at kind of bringing that in and, you know, capitalizing on as we'll see in future Lovecraft stories, you know, this is these are global stories. You know, there's cults everywhere, newspaper clippings everywhere, people scouring the globe. I mean, even today, people capitalize on that aspect with, you know, games like, uh, um, what's the board game we play, like Arkham Madness or whatever? I can't remember. It's a globe-trotting game, you know? So Arkham Horror? Arkham Horror, yeah. You know, th there's that element of, you know, globalization and globetrotting. Even though this mostly takes place in a San Francisco hospital and his diaries, you still get that scope of there's something big going on. And with that, we're going to bring our discussion of William Michael's Dagon Rising to a close. Up next is upcoming events. We want to say thank you to Lee Murray who, for providing the opening bumper for this episode. She wrote the Tane McKenna Adventures, co-wrote the Path of Raw Books, and co-edited Black Crane's Anthology. We recently interviewed her, so please have a listen. The link is in the show notes. We wish her much continued success. And on Episode 9 of HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be stepping back in time to the 1950s when we discuss The Vast of Night a 2019 science fiction mystery film directed by Andrew Patterson and starring Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. This episode will post on Sunday, April 18th. 
And on Scholars from the Edge of Time, we'll be streaming on Thursday, April 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you don't catch us live, not a problem. The episode will be available afterwards for download. And for our brand new HP Lovecraft Transmissions program, stay tuned for when we'll be posting that in our social media channels. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have an Amazon author pages with links to all the books we've edited or contributed with, with individual essays. We also have a coffee account now, which is designed to help us keep production and book costs down. So a link to that is provided in the show notes as well. Thank you all so much for listening.